Hey, welcome. My name is Pat Fisk, and I will be your host for the evening. Uh, this is Friday the 20th, and I've been going through a study of spiritual growth, what it means to have spiritual growth, how it ties in with discipleship and stuff. So we've kind of wrapped that up last week, which is uh, good. We'll probably address, still continually addressing the idea of spiritual growth because we all need it. Yeah, I mean, you're not going to stop growing in Christ. And the whole idea is to continue to be more and more Christ-like. That's the definition. That's the idea of discipleship and spiritual growth. So I, I definitely highly recommend that you get plugged into a church, uh, get plugged into a really good church. And that's the only way. It's a, a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church. There's a lot of churches that are going on right now in the public, and they're going woke, uh, talking about this this white privilege, and and it's just it's getting out of hand, and it's getting kind of crazy what's going on. Uh, so you've got to be really careful with the doctrine that the Bible or what they're teaching, and and it is hard. You've got to be really up on discernment and understanding the Bible. You need to you need to be personally in the Bible all the time to study, uh, know God's word, to, to be uh, approved. And Peter talks about that, that we are to show ourselves, uh, we know the Bible. We just, and if you know the Bible, then it's gonna be easier to find and pick out the counterfeits and I think that's in our culture, it's really important, especially nowadays. Ever since this COVID junk hit, uh, people have taken advantage of it as far as the churches, closing churches down, saying that they're non-essential, classify them as the same as a football team. I mean, are you kidding me? Give me a break. It's not the same as a football team. It's a joke if, they think, if, if that's what they think and that's what you think. It's the same as a football team. It, it's a joke. Uh, those guys are high-paid high entertainers. Uh, and uh, they whine if they don't get their uh, seven million or whatever. So it's kind of a joke. Uh, I'm not much of a, a, a sports fan. I mean, some of them are good. College, you know what? Those guys are really working their tails off to do it. Uh, hopefully, they keep it. And you can't even you can say God, but you can't say uh, you can't use Jesus's name if you drop the J bomb. Uh, next, thing I know you're getting axed. Uh, look at Tim Tebow. Uh, you can say God all you want, but as soon as you drop the J-bomb, you're toast. So we're living, and I guess this is my point, we're not, we're not only living in a, in a society right now that is anti-God, anti-Christian, but we're living in a society where it's, uh, 
it's militant. It's uh, it's absolutely against, and they're doing everything to shut the voice of of Christians. So it's important to be the voice, stand up, and and be the voice for Christ. Yeah, you know, he doesn't need us. Be honest, he doesn't need us. We're put on the earth uh, to love him, uh, freely choose to love him. I don't believe in uh, the idea that we we're, we're, we've been picked. Uh, that we're part of this elect group that God arbitrarily chooses, uh, kind of mentioned, it's just not true. Uh, the Bible speaks of it and, and definitely teaches against that, that, that idea. Uh, the same thing as far as going on the other side, uh, opposing Calvinism, you look at Arminianism. And they say that you can lose your salvation. Those are like some of the differences. And I just totally disagree with that. I mean, you'd have to redefine what the word eternal means uh, to hold to an idea that you can actually lose your salvation. You can walk away from the faith. Once you've had that and tasted that and you have eternal life, they're saying that you can walk away and uh, denounce your faith. Well, these these deep transitioners, it's like the new thing amongst these 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 rock bands or these Christian, supposed Christian rock bands are like, detransitioning they're uh walking away from the faith well they were never saved to begin with and that's true look at their fruits i mean you might have got involved uh thinking that you were a christian you walked in front of a church you you, you prayed you said the sinner's prayer and then next thing i know that's what you're you think you're you're saved and stuff well, well that's wrong that's not true uh because if you're truly saved it, what what Paul says in uh, Romans uh, eight, I think it's thirty thirty one, that what he starts, he predestines, then he calls, then he justifies, and then he glorifies. It's a, it's a process. It's an unending chain that he starts. What what he's a author and finisher. If he starts something, he's going to complete something. That same thing, he's going to pl- complete your salvation. And there's so many different verses that Jesus said that uh, whom the Father has given me, uh, no one can take away. Well, that no one includes us. And then Jesus said uh, to the uh, all the people that were praying, oh, didn't I say this in your name? Didn't I do this in your name? And Jesus says, depart, me, depart from me, you who work iniquity. I never knew you. He didn't say that I knew you at one time and you walked away or I don't know you now. Uh, he said, I never knew you. So that means you were never saved to begin with. So once you're saved and truly saved, your fruits are going to show that. And then you are obviously going to finish that process. Like Paul said, uh, for new, he called, he justified. And obviously the sanctification is that, that process between justification and sanctification, which is that setting apart You're you're setting your life apart uh, and that's an ongoing struggle battle for all of us, including myself, that once you get that into that sanctification process, at the end, it's going to be a glorification where we're with God, we get our glorified body, and we live with Him forever. Well, that kind of leads into what I'm talking about tonight. I had a Bible study the other night. with uh, I was asked to do a Bible study for my pastor. He was uh, out of town doing a talk, and <clears throat> so he asked me to step in. I didn't know what I was going to talk about. So I decided to talk about the uh, uh, gentleman named uh, Joe Amaral. He's from Canada. I think it's Toronto. I could be wrong. Don't quote me, but he could be wrong. Uh, but he kind of teaches what's... His thing is, I teach what's not in the Bible. 
And what he means by that, he's not teaching heresy. What he's teaching is when you have like Matthew is a Jew, he's a tax collector, but he's a, he's a Jew. And when he wrote Matthew, he was speaking to the Jews. That was his audience. So good interpretation. When you're Bible interpreter, Bible student, we need to know who, what, when, where, and why. Who's writing it? Uh, who's the recipients? Really important. Where they're at, like who, what's the statement? Uh, who, what, when, when? Is it, uh, is it when Christ was still there? It makes a really big difference when you're writing things uh, before the temple, after the temple, uh, and, and that was destroyed in Jerusalem in AD, the year AD 70. So it makes a huge difference on who, what, when, where was he speaking? Uh, geographically, where was he speaking? And sometimes why? Why was the message so important? So understanding those principles when we look at the Bible for, and we've got to use the, the I, I say the first century Jewish eyes. I've got a, a whole section up over here of books I wish I could show you, and over here that I'm looking at the, the original language. You got to get into the original language. What are they talking about? Uh, because we, we have a tendency of putting our uh, 21st century eyes and, and ideas and thoughts into a first century document. And obviously the Old Testament is earlier than the first century, but I'm talking about the writers of the New Testament and when Jesus was was actually physically here on earth. So we've got to look at those things and understand kind of the idea behind it. There's so many different things that you can look at uh, within the lenses of the first century Jewish mindset that just opens your eyes to just you name it, it just opens your eyes to the the richness of the Jewish culture and understanding that we worship a Jewish Messiah. He was 100% Jew, and he spoke to the Jews. He also spoke to the Greeks and the Gentiles, but his audience was to the Jews. So you got to understand that concept a little bit, understand the, the backstory to really, I mean, just to really grasp what Jesus was talking about. So one of the things we were talking about, and that's kind of like a, an intro into what I'm going to be talking about tonight and probably next week also, is uh, based on what I see in the Bible and then also based on the the New, or not the New Testament, but the the Jewish wedding feast we were talking about, like end times. I'm, I'm, I'm starting my end time series right now, and we'll be talking about eschatology, end time events, prophecies. And stuff, which will be really kind of fun uh, to talk about, because right now we live in a culture that it's going downhill pretty fast, and uh, we've got to hold on. I mean, it's swirling. Sometimes it feels like the our country is swirling around the the edge of a toilet, and it's going down pretty fast. Uh, but we serve a good God, and and He's gonna not allow us to be ignorant and not know what's going on. He's going to tell us. He's going to give us hints in the Bible. He's going to tell us what's going on. And we're going to kind of look at and and break down what these end time events. Ron Rhodes is a, a really good. I wish I had my book right here with me. Ron Rhodes wrote a, a couple, obviously, really good books. And I'll have them next week because I'm kind of reading those right now. But talking about end time events, and I'm not... Uh, I'm not one of those doomsdayers or, or preppers or anything like that. I just say that we live in a country right now. We live in a time that's really, really important. And we've, we've really got to get our head on straight 
and and dive into God's word. So we've got to be prepared. We're going to get to a point where we're going to have to go underground, and the church is going to be just that. It's going to be an underground church like it is in China and in Iran. Stuff They're feeling the persecution. We're not. I mean, it's like we're getting a slap on the wrist. So we haven't really felt that persecution yet, uh, but it's coming. It is. It's guaranteed. It is coming, and we've got to be prepared for it. Uh, I have a lot of uh, good friends that view scripture differently than I do, and meaning that uh, my, my, my pastor, for instance, he's a post-tribber, and he believes that Jesus is going to come back the second coming. Uh, he's going to come back at the end of the tribulation period, and that's when the rapture is going to happen. So he's a post-tribber. I'm, I'm, I'm a pre-trib rapture guy. I, I believe that Jesus is going to come. The, the rapture is not the second coming. I believe that Jesus is coming at the end of the seven years. We agree on that. But I think Jesus comes and the rapture of the church is a separate event than at the end of the seven years when Jesus comes back to reign and actually plant his feet on the Mount of Olives. I believe they're two separate events. And we're going to look at some of them. A lot of it, <clears throat> excuse me, is how I look at and how the how Jesus went through the Jewish wedding feast. And it's hugely important to understand what Jesus did when he came off of the throne, came to earth as a baby, and this whole process. So I've got some notes here. We're going to go through these notes. If it feels like I'm reading some stuff, it is, because I want to make sure that you get the flavor and you totally get the understanding. And then we're going to look at, uh, probably not tonight, we're going to look at uh, pre-trib versus post-trib, why the the contrast, why there's such a contrast between certain events that happen that can't be, I believe, according to scripture, cannot be a, uh, a, a post-trib viewpoint because just certain events are going to happen. So this is going to be for the next few weeks. We're also, like I said, we're going to get into... Uh, just all the different premillennialism, just end time events. And hopefully we'll get to a point, this will take a few weeks, get into the actual timeline of events on a scale of when Jesus came, had the Jewish wedding feast. We're going to look at the uh, the festivals, how Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, Pentecost. And then we're going to look at uh, trumpets, day of, uh, uh, day of atonement, and... Uh, uh, festival is booth, uh, tabernacles, feast of tabernacles. Jesus has already completed Passover, uh, unleavened bread, and feast, <clears throat> excuse me, first fruits. We are in Pentecost right now. We are in that harvest. We are in that gathering right now. So not only Jesus follows, you can look at the, like a timeline of events with the Jewish wedding feast or the, uh, the festivals, but what Jesus actually did when he came to earth totally follows the Jewish, the wedding feast as far as uh, systematically what uh, a male would do, a, a, a man would do when he was picking out his bride. It's not a coincidence. He followed it to a T. You can look at that, what, what a man does in a Jewish wedding, and you can look at what Jesus did uh, all the way down to uh, the Last Supper. And what he did on the cross, I mean, it's just amazing. There's no way that you can say that it was by accident. It is absolutely uh, intentional. Jesus does everything intentional. There is no, uh, there's no mistakes. There's no accidents and stuff like that. Everything he does and says 
all his deeds, they're all intentional. They, they're all Jewish by nature. And understanding this is going to blow your mind. Some of the things that he does, you're just going to sit back like, no way. Uh, the writing in the sand. I mean, there's so many cool things. Anyways, so what we're going to focus on tonight and probably next week, I'm probably not going to get into it because this is kind of a long introduction, uh, but we're going to get into the, the Jewish wedding feast, the Jewish marriage customs, and and how Jesus uh, fulfilled this to the T. So Jesus had, uh, had been warning his disciples concerning his coming death, resurrection, and ascension. Uh, the prospect of these events caused the disciples to be greatly disturbed because some of the things he was saying that the disciples didn't understand uh, what he was saying. But he says, in order to ease their fears, Jesus made the following comforting promise. So what we're going to look at uh, right now, we're going to look at John 14 verses 1 through 3. I think it's, yeah, John 14, 1 through 3. So let's take a look at that. John uh, 14, 1 through 3. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, that's really critical right there, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know and know the way. So it's really important, part of it, uh, not part of it, all of it, is really important to understand where, that one part where he says uh, in verse 3, where I am, there you may be also. That is really important to understand that. So the Jewish wedding customs. All right, so we're going to get into that right now. Like I said, I'm going to read some stuff, but I'm going to make it so uh, I'm reading it for the sole purpose that I, I don't miss inter, uh, I, I misspeak something. I want to make it very clear and so we can understand that. For those who lived in a modern Western world do not catch the full significance of Jesus' promise. And I think if we're looking through the Bible and we're looking at the Bible through the first century, like, uh, Jewish eyes, we can get it if we're doing our our, our proper study, uh, get our mindset into that first century Jewish mindset, then things just go poof and we understand it. But if you don't open the Bible, you won't understand these things. Okay, You've got to get into God's word. You have to. All right, so this is due to the fact that in his promise, Jesus was drawn on an analogy from the Jewish wedding custom in biblical times. This is so true. If you really truly understand the Jewish wedding, it will uh, just kind of blow your mind. Uh, so, for example, the first major step in a Jewish marriage uh, was the betrothal. Okay, uh, A betrothal involved the establishment of a marriage covenant by Jesus' time, it was usual for such a covenant to be established uh, as a result of a prospective bridegroom taking the initiative. The prospective bridegroom would travel from his house or his father's house to the home of the pro to the bride <clears throat> or the prospective bride. There he would negotiate with his father of the young woman to determine the price, the mahar, or it's a, it's a dowry. It's a price paid to the father uh for his 
for his daughter that he must pay to purchase his bride. Okay, so that so the son uh, takes off and he goes to the his his future bride's father's house. They sit down. They're in a room. They they haggle over the price. I shouldn't say haggle. Uh, he, he's going to give everything, okay? That's the thing. This guy is going to give everything he can because he loves this woman. He's going to show the father that, you know what? I love your I love your daughter. This is everything I got. I'm going to take care of. And that's the key thing. I'm go- I've got what it takes to ca- take care of your, uh, take care of your daughter. So after that, once the bridegroom paid the, pro- uh, the purchase price, so the dowry, they come to an agreement and he pays this price to the father. Uh, the marriage covenant was thereby established. Okay. The young man and the woman were regarded as husband and wife. That's really important because in that time it was, these were, uh, kind of set up marriages, uh, and stuff like that. So it's just, that was the culture. So from that moment on, the bride was declared to be consecrated or, uh, or, uh, sanctified, set apart exclusively for the bridegroom, as a symbol of the covenant relationship that had been established, the groom and the bride would drink from a cup of wine over the over which the betrothal benediction had been pronounced. So, uh, the guy comes to the house, pays the price. Then they go into the room, uh, the, the bride and or the future bride, or actually the bride uh, and the, and the husband, the bridegroom, fill a glass with wine. Obviously drank it, but he would pass it to her. If she drank it, she's accepting it. So that's really key, understanding that. If she drank it, she accepted it. Drank it, drank it, boom, they're married. Okay? By all legal purposes, these guys are married at that moment. Okay. So after the marriage covenant, so after this has happened, okay, uh, the groom would leave uh, leave the home of the bride and return to his father's house. There he would remain separate from the bride uh, for a period of 12 months or so or whatever. This period of separation afforded the bride uh, time to gather uh, everything she needs to prepare for the, the married life. The groom uh, accompanied or occupied himself with the preparation of living accommodations, so basically building a house uh, on top of or off of his father's house. So once this happens, he takes off, leaves her. Uh, he leaves her something. That's the key. He leaves her with gifts to remind. So the so to recap, he comes, pays the price. She drinks the wine, covenant set. Uh, he gives a gift to, uh, to remember him as he's gone. And then he takes off and goes back to his father's house to do what? To build onto the father's house, a place for him and his new bride. At the end of the period of separation, the groom would come to take his bride to live with him. The taking of the bride usually took place at night. The groom, best man, And other males escorts would leave the the groom's father's house and conduct a torchlight procession to the home of the bride. So let me let me go back a little bit. Once he is built onto the father's house, he doesn't just get up and then take off and go get the bride. That doesn't happen because if it was left up to us as guys 
we would go there and build some kind of lean to off to like, give me a blue tarp and a couple steaks. Boom. We've got it. No, he has to go there, prep the house, get everything ready, get the plumbing done, get the electrical check, get all the permits. And that's what the father does. Okay. And then, so he's wanting to go back, go back, go back and get his bride. But he's like, no, no, no. Not until I say so. Okay. So only the father knows when it's time to happen. Okay. That's it. Only the father knows. They don't. So here's the deal. Father says it's okay. Checks off everything. Okay. You're good to go. So now go. So he goes down and, uh, like I said, brings his entourage, uh, leaves the father's house, goes to and, and comes to the, the city or the town and to the home of the bride. Okay, although the bride was expecting her groom to come for her, she did not know the exact time of his coming. As a result, the groom's arrival would be preceded by a shout, or maybe a trumpet, maybe, I don't know, just saying. This shout would be, would to, be to forewarn the bride to be prepared for the coming of the groom. So he never came into the town, okay? He sat outside of the town. It's really important. Okay, after the groom received the bride, <clears throat> together with her family, or her female attendants, okay? So he came down with his entourage. Now she's leaving with her entourage and them together. The enlarged wedding party would return from the bride's home to the groom's father's house. Upon arrival, their wedding party would find that the wedding guests had assembled already. Okay, this is so key to understanding this whole chain of events compared to what Jesus, and we're going to get into that here. Shortly after the arrival, of the, after the arrival, the bride and group would be escorted by other members of the wedding party to the bridal chamber. It's called the hoopa. Okay. Prior to entering the chamber, the bride remained veiled. Okay. So they had that veil. She did so that no one could see her face. While the groomsmen and the bridemaids uh, would wait outside, the bride and the groom would enter the bridal chamber alone. Okay. Very, very interesting. There in the privacy of the place, they would enter into a physical union for the first time, thereby consummating the marriage that had been covenanted earlier. So they already have a covenant. They've already had a, basically a signed agreement or a marriage license, but this is to consummate the marriage. After the marriage uh, was consummated, the groom would announce the consummation to the other members of the wedding party awaiting outside the chamber. We can look at John, uh, what was it? John 3.29. So let's look at John 3.29. So John 3.29. Come on. All right, so let's look at John 29. And it says, He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. So, kind of tells you right now that, and this is Jesus. This isn't John talking about this. So he's following along with this Jewish wedding feast. So after the marriage was consummated, the groom, like I said, would announce the consummation and they would go into the waiting outside the chamber or the chamber, marriage chamber. 
These people would pass on the news of the marital union to the wedding guests. Upon receiving the good news, the wedding guests would feast and make merry for the next seven days. Okay, very important. Next seven days. Okay, excuse me. During the seven days of the wedding festivities, which were sometimes called the seven days of the hoopah, okay, the bride remained hidden. Okay, this is really important. The bride would remain would, would would remain hidden in the bridal chamber. At the conclusion of the seven days, the groom would bring his bride out of the bridal chamber, now with her veil removed. Okay, now the the veil is removed so that all could see who the bride is. Okay, kind of like in, in secrecy. Okay, so let's look at this examination, this this. Uh, this analogy between that and Jesus. Earlier it was stated that in the uh, the promise of John 14, Jesus drew from the Jewish wedding customs in biblical times. Now that the marriage customs have been considered, we've looked at those, okay? It's essential that the analogy be examined. So look at the, the, the what Jesus did and the wedding feast, okay? In the examination of this analogy, the first thing that should be noted is the fact that the scriptures regard the church as the bride. We are the bride of Christ. And it's many, many times that he is called the, the bridegroom. Uh, look at Ephesians real quick. I want to make sure it's just not me saying this. This is what this is what God's word is saying. And we have to, everything we do it has to be grounded in God's word. Can't just be my opinion, what I think or what you think. It has to be grounded in God's word. So we're going to look at Ephesians, uh, what, Ephesians 5. 22 and 23. So Ephesians 5, 22. What? Where am I? Nothing happened. Let's see. Ephesians 5. There it is. 22. Ephesians 5, 22 and 23. Okay. Wives. Let me see. Where is it? Where was I? Uh, so we are considered the bride of Christ. Uh all right, so wives, submit your submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of church, and he is the Savior of the body. So we're talking about that he is comparing Jesus is the, the groom over as the church is the bride, Christ is the groom. That's a comparison. I'm not getting into the submit stuff. So in addition, just as the Jewish bridegroom took the initiative in marriage by leading his, leaving his father's house and traveling to the home of the prospective bride, so Jesus left his father's house also um, in heaven and traveled to earth. So when he came to Bethlehem to be born, that is the same thing as the man leaving his father's house to come to the, his prospective bride's choosing his bride okay same exact thing jesus left his father's house got came off the throne to come down here and choose you and me okay if that's not something to go blow your mind then why would he do that for you why would he do that for me okay hey i can answer that he loved us okay he loved us so much that he gave his life that's the key right there okay so uh, in the same manner, okay. So over, uh, so he came down, left it, left the throne, and <clears throat> excuse me, 
came to earth to choose us. Okay, in the same manner as the Jewish bridegroom came to the bride's home for the purpose of obtaining her through the establishment of a marriage covenant. Okay, so they came down here, they got into a covenant, they both drank wine. Okay, so Jesus came to earth for the purpose of obtaining the church, us, through the establishment of a covenant. Okay, on that same night, in which Jesus made his promise in John 14. So John 14, 1 through 3, where he left his father's house, he instituted communion. As he passed the cup of wine to his disciples, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five. This was his way of saying that he would establish a new covenant through the shedding blood of, his, of the cross. So, he paid the, the 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 groom the Jewish man groom would pay the price to the father, okay, and paid everything he had to the father for the bride. Jesus left the throne, left his father's house, came uh, as a baby, okay, grew up, choosing the church. So on the that night. Uh, at the Last Supper, he had that cup that he poured. It's the fourth cup of Passover, the cup of acceptance. And he gave it. And he gave it to his disciples, said, drink. And what does he say? This is the cup of, the, uh, this is the new covenant. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. So just like the Jewish man paid everything, so did Jesus. He paid the ultimate, okay? He paid his life. That is the bride price. That is the dowry that Jesus paid for you and for me. And if we don't take it serious, we're just, we're lost. We've got to understand what he did for us. So he paid the price through his blood, the shedding blood on the cross, parallel to the custom of the Jewish groom, like I said, paying the purchase price for the bride. Jesus paid the ultimate price, okay? It was because of this purchase price that Paul wrote uh, to the church. Know you, oh, let's look at it. First uh, Corinthians, take a look. Let's see, First Corinthians 6. Where am I? So yeah, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we're going to look at verses 19, uh, what is it, 19 and 20. Chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Okay, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? Okay, that is so key. We do, we think that we are our own, but it says right here, you are not your own, okay? For you were bought at a price, okay? Bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit. This is key right here, which are God's. So not only is our body, but it's also our spirit. That is God's. We are not our own. We've got to understand that we are not our own. Everything we do, we if we do it in secret, there is no secret. We do it 
in front of Christ. We have this one person, a witness of one. Okay, We have an audience of one that we need to be looking at. And that's the only person that we need to be doing everything we can to glorify him, uh, to lift him up, to build his kingdom. And that is it. And we fail miserably at it sometimes. Okay, I'm, I'm speaking from my heart. We got to understand what he did for us. Okay, so he gave uh, everything for us and we need to give it back to him. So he paid the price, the ultimate price. Okay, so in comparative with the Jewish bride, uh, being declared to be sanctified or set apart exclusively for her groom once the marriage covenant was established. The church has been declared to be sanctified or set apart uh, exclusively for Christ. Ephesians 5, 25 and 27, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2, also verse 6 and 11 in 1 Corinthians, Hebrews 10, 10, Hebrews 13, 11. We are set apart. We are in that Pentecost. We are in that uh, once we're chosen, uh, God, Jesus has chosen us and he has left right now. We are in that sanctified part. We are setting ourselves apart from the world. We're saying, you know what? I don't want that. I am going to do what I need to for him. So when he leaves, and that's what we're doing right now, he left, he gave us a gift, like he, like a, a Jewish man would give the bride a Jewish uh uh, uh, the the bride he would give him, give her a gift to remember him by. So what did Jesus give us? What did Jesus say? I when he leaves, what did he do? He's leaving the Comforter. What's the Comforter? It's the Holy Spirit. Why is he leaving us the Holy Spirit? We're indwelt with the Holy Spirit, so that everything and he says, every, I, "I leave you the Holy Spirit, the Helper. He will do and." help you remember everything that he did and he was always going to be with us it's a it's a guarantee it's a down payment of something that he's going to complete in the end okay so that's what we're at right now not only in the jewish festivals we're in that sanctification process we're in that pentecost we're in that harvest the summer gap between the spring and the fall feast there's that Pentecost, that's where we're at right now, that gathering of his people, okay? And Jesus is going to come back, and he's going to come back, uh, and he's going to rule. But we got to understand uh, some of this interesting stuff. We've got to be ready. We've His return is imminent. I mean, if he doesn't do something right now in our country, I mean, it's like he owes Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. How bad was Sodom and Gomorrah uh, compared to what we're looking at today? Our, our culture is so perverse. It is so evil. So it makes you wonder how bad Sodom and Gomorrah was. It is just absolutely... Today, I'm off the topic how how wicked we are. Uh, this, this guy, I, I couldn't believe it, just about turned my stomach. We're at a store... Walmart, and some guy is waiting for the the day after pill. He's like, uh, had to get this cabinet open as fast as he can because uh, him talking about him uh, hooking up with some girl last night and needing this day after pill. And I'm like, are you kidding me? And the way he was saying it, it was so just like nonchalant, uh, just disgusting. I can't think of any other words. I was like sick to my stomach. Uh, 
that he wanted to make sure that that life, that possible, that life didn't happen. That That's how callous he was. But that's how evil our, our world is right now. We need to be ready at, at any moment for his return. Uh, we're not going to go through that seven years and then, no, we don't know when he's coming back. Okay, that's the point I'm getting at. We don't know when he's coming back because his return is imminent. It could be any moment now. There's nothing waiting. There's nothing that has to happen for Christ's return to earth to take his people. Look at First Thessalonians, what is it? First Thessalonians chapter four, and we'll get into that, uh, that, that taken away, uh, the harpazo, the, 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 the capture, the caught up. We are, we are caught up uh, with him. And we're going to discuss it. I'm not going to get too far. But anyways, that's what we need to look at. So, uh, so in the same way that the cup of wine served as a symbol of the marriage covenant through which the, the Jewish... Uh, oops, I got to move something real quick. So just like the, the Jewish groom obtained uh, his bride, so the cup of communion serves as a symbol of the covenant through, uh, through which Christ has obtained the church. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five. So, but Jesus said, I'm not going to, it's the cup of acceptance. Like during the Passover, that was the fourth cup, the cup of acceptance. And Jesus said, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm not going to drink this until it's new in my father's house. Until that acceptance. Because he can't, he couldn't drink the cup of acceptance because the Jews, his people there in Jerusalem rejected him. They didn't accept him. Okay. So, of course, he couldn't drink that cup, but his disciples did. His disciples accepted that. That was the cup. He paid the price. He paid the bride's price. Okay? He paid ultimately. Okay? So just as a Jewish groom left the home of his bride and returned to his father's house after the marriage covenant and had been established, so Jesus left the earth. Okay? Jesus ascended. He went back to his father's house, the home of... <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, so Jesus left the earth, the home of the church, and returned to his father's house in heaven after he had established the new covenant and risen from the dead. Let's take a look at this. Let's take a look at, uh, was it John? John chapter 6. So John chapter 6. And we're going to look at, where to go? Uh, verse 62. And then we're also going to look at chapter 20. So verse 62, John all right, so what then, uh, let me transfer. All right. What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? So it's key. Where is he going back to? See, right here. Real key to this, right there. Where he was before. So he says he's going back to his father's house. That is in heaven. So he's going back. So when he goes back, he says right here, ascending back to his father's house where he, was, where he was before. That's my only key. I want to stress on that. He's leaving. The Bible says he's going back to his father's house. Just like the Jewish man, the groom, would go back to his father's house. That's what he was doing. Okay. Corresponding with the period of separation between the Jewish groom and the bride, Christ has remained separate from the church for over 2,000 years. Okay, the church is now living in that period of se separation, that period of sanctification, that setting apart. He's given us the Holy Spirit to uh, to help us remind us of Him. We've got God's Word, so 
<clears throat> there's nothing that that hasn't followed the Jewish wedding feast. And some people say, well, it's a coincidence. No, it's not. I mean, Jesus did things intentionally. And you can look through Scripture and see it. You look in the Old Testament, you see Jesus. Look in the New Testament, you see Jesus. You look at everything, and you see Jesus. Everything in the Old Testament points forward to Jesus. Everything in the New Testament, it's fulfilled. Jesus came to fulfill these things. You don't think Jesus, Jesus, he's a Jew. He was going to follow Jewish customs. He was a Jewish male who followed these things. Of course he's going to follow the Jewish wedding feast. And the way he did it was just absolutely amazing. Okay, so he's taken off. We're in that 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 summer gap when you talk about like the, the Jewish uh, festivals. So we're in that that Pentecost, that harvest right now. So parallel to the custom of the Jewish group, preparing living accommodations for the bride in his father's house <clears throat> during the time of separation. Christ has been preparing uh, living accommodations, okay, for the church in his father's house in heaven during the separation from the bride. Like I said, John 14. Uh, look at John 14. Throat is kind of raspy because I'm starting to catch uh, a little bit of a cold, but I'm so excited. I was like, there's no way I'm going to miss this. I've been wanting to teach on this kind of like in detail for quite a while. My wife keeps telling me, you got to do this, got to do this. And this is what this once I realized how the Jewish wedding feast, how Jesus followed it, I was just like amazed the Jewishness of just the the Bible itself, the Jewishness of Jesus and the Jewishness of our of our faith. It was just absolutely amazing. So let's look at that real quick. Uh, what was it? John 14, verse 2. I can just re read verse 1. We've already read it, but I want to read it again. It's pretty cool. Okay, so let me... Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. That if I go, prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, God, this is so, golly. So I will receive you. To myself, key, that where I am, there you may be also. Okay, that is so key right there. I will come again. Obviously, he says he's going to come back. So it's evident that, that there's going to be a return. Jesus is going to return. But it's so key that I will receive you to myself. Meaning where he is, we are going to, he's going to receive us to himself. That where I am, you may be there also. Okay, so, okay, so that is really good key. Someone asked me, he said, "Well, we're not. How we're going to be in heaven?" Okay, so look at that in, in uh, verse three, John chapter fourteen, verse three, where it says that where I am, there you may be also. So where is he? Okay, he's preparing a place for us right now. He's with the Father. He's in his Father's house, preparing a place for us. While all the people, and then you can get into the different ideas as far as, uh, uh, what am I saying? As far as the number of people coming to save. Jesus, God knows, Jesus knows the timeline that's fulfilled, okay? He knows from the beginning, knows from the end. He knows who's going to be saved and who's not going to be saved. So waiting for the last Gentile to come to faith and then 
uh, that's when he's going to come down and remove his church. We can talk about the restrainer, how the restrainer works, and blah, 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 all this other stuff, but we're not going to get into that right now. We're just kind of focusing, like tonight and probably next week, focusing on the Jewish wedding feast. That's what we're doing. All right, so we already know that he's taken off. Uh, he's in his father's house. He's preparing a place for us. So in the same manner as a Jewish groom came to take his bride to live with him at the end of the period of the separation, so Christ will come also uh, to get his church to live with him at the end of his separation uh, period from the church. And we read that in John 14, 3. Okay, so just as Jesus, uh, or just uh, just as the taking of the Jewish bride was accomplished by the procession of the groom and the male escorts from the groom's house, father's house, to the home of the bride, so the taking of the church will be accomplished by the procession of Christ and an, and an angelic escort from Christ's father's house in heaven to the home or, or yeah, to the home of the church. So let's take a look real quick. <clears throat> Excuse me. First Thessalonians. Uh, doo -doo -doo. All right, so First Thessalonians, we're going to go chapter 4. We're going to look at verse 16. Uh, so First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. Okay. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, okay, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead will, right here, and the dead will rise first. Then, <clears throat> excuse me, then we who are alive and remain shall be what? Caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Okay, right there. Okay, totally different than the second coming. This is so key. We are up there, caught up with him in the air. Okay. Jesus on the second coming, when he comes uh, on the stallion to, at the end of the tribulation to destroy the enemies, he comes and plants. It says nothing about being caught up with him in the air. It says nothing about he is coming back as a king, as a warrior, to plant his feet on the Mount of Olives, establish his kingdom, wipe out his enemies. That is what it is. And we're going to be living with him. We are coming back with him. How can we... <clears throat> How can we come back with him if we weren't with him to begin with? That is key. That's key of, of understanding. So if we're caught up with them, it says them, angelics, uh, host, and Jesus in the clouds to meet him in the air. And thus, right here, and finish it off. And thus shall be with the Lord, therefore comfort one another. So, so I think the key right there, when we look at it, together with them in the clouds to meet them up in the air. So he's, we're going to be caught up. That word caught up, harpazo, means just that, to be caught up in the air. Okay, totally different than the second coming when he comes at the end of the seven-year period. Okay, nothing, when it talks about the end time after the seven years, when Jesus comes back to establish his kingdom, there is no talk whatsoever about being caught up with him in the air. None. So we have to be, so it has to be a separate event. And it's a secret because it tells us no one knows the day or the hour. Just like 
just like in the Jewish wedding feast, the father says, okay, he's looked at everything. Everything looks good. Go get your bride. So him and his entourage, okay, goes down, gets his bride, <clears throat> comes back, takes him up, boom, boom, boom. Okay, that is when Jesus comes down, caught up in the clouds with him. That is the same as with a loud trumpet. See, if you want to look at look back at it, when it says, who are asleep first in the loud heaven with a shout and with uh, the trumpet of God. Okay, that is key. That is just like the, the Jewish man coming outside the temple or outside the city. Sorry, not the temple. Outside of the, the wife's uh, future, future wife's village, town, whatever you want to call it, and blows the trumpet. Okay, that's exactly what's happening right here. Okay, blows the trumpet. They come out, just like in Jesus says, right there, with a shout, with a voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. Okay, this is not... This is a different trumpet. Paul talks about at the last trump. Okay. This is not the trumpet. At the, this is not the last trumpet. This is not the judgment. Okay. Totally two. There's a there's a uh, two different trumpets. At the last trumpet, Paul's talking about. And then in Revelation, talking about the seventh trumpet. Okay. One is a gathering. Okay. Here, trumpet. This is the gathering of his people. Okay. At the end, the seventh trump or the seventh uh, judgment trumpet. Uh, that is a declaration of his kingdom. Okay, so there's two different trumpets. They're not the same. Those two are not the same events. Okay, because there's nothing that says that at all. And for someone to say that the new Jerusalem, when it comes down, that is heaven. It is not heaven. Because it says in uh, Revelation 21, it says, I saw the new Jerusalem, the new city, new heaven, coming out of heaven. How can something come out of itself. How can heaven come out of heaven? It doesn't. It doesn't make sense. And God's not a God of confusion. Okay. He's not an author of confusion. He is an author of clarity. Okay. We might not under <clears throat> excuse me. We might not understand it, but doesn't mean it's not true. So looking at the time real quick. All right. So parallel with cussing room, like I said, boom, boom, boom. Uh Christ uh the church will experience all right, let me go back real quick. Uh, in the same manner as the Jewish wedding party found wedding guests assembled in the groom's father's house when they arrived, so Christ and the church will find the souls of Old Testament saints assembled in heaven. Okay, when they arrive, okay, these souls will serve as the wedding guests. Those are the wedding guests. Uh, pretty simple. I, I, I would. I don't know how else to say that. It's pretty simple. Parallel to the custom of the Jewish groom and the bride entering into a physical union after their arrival uh, at the groom's father's house, thereby consummating the marriage that had been covenanted in earlier, Christ and the church will experience spiritual union after their arrival at the father's house in heaven, thereby consummating their relationship that had been already made a covenant earlier. Corresponding with the Jewish bride remaining hidden in the bridal chamber for a period of how many? Seven days after the arrival in the Father's house, the church will remain hidden. Hmm. For a period of what? Seven. Seven years. Okay. Totally makes sense. After the arrival at Christ's Father's house in heaven. While the seven year, what? Tribulation period is taking place on the earth, the church will be in heaven totally hidden from the sight of those living on 
the earth. Some people say, well, when are we going to be in heaven? Where does it say that we're going to be in heaven? Because we saw that the other, uh, I, someone said that the other night when we were talking about this. And, and my conversation about the study was, had nothing, I wasn't going there to talk about pre-trib. I was just talking about Jewish, the, the Jewishness of our faith. And this happened to come up and we had a discussion at the end. And there's some people that are very adamant about being post-trib and that's fine. They're very adamant. Okay. But you can't, you can't look at this, and, and once you've seen this, you can't unsee it. And it's the same thing. There was a verse, uh, what was it? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, verse 2, that was brought up to me. And I was like, okay. And it had to make me think a little bit. Okay. So it talks about the gathering of sound. And we'll look at that later, but I'm not so close-minded. There might be verses that I, I don't understand how they fit in. Doesn't mean it doesn't. Does that make sense? So, uh, but yeah, let's go on. Uh, so after the church, uh, arrival at the Father's house, uh, while the seven-year tribulation period is taking place on earth, the church will be in heaven, in heaven, totally hidden. Just as the Jewish groom brought the bride out of the bridal chamber at the conclusion of the seven days with her veil removed so that all could see who the bride was, Christ will bring his church, us, out of heaven. <clears throat> Excuse me at his second coming, at the conclusion of the seven years, tribulation period, to in full view of who are alive, that all that can see who the true church is. Let's look at Colossians. Uh, some people argue with me, and they don't, they don't think about it, but Colossians are the, I believe, what the Bible teaches as far as during the tribulation period. I totally believe that during the tribulation period, the seven years, that is for the Jews, Okay. Absolutely for the Jews, because there's a, a, a few verses that who, well, anyways, let's look at this real quick. I'm not going to argue about it right now. So Colossians 3, verse 4, when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear in glory. Huh. When Christ, who is our life, oh, let's transition. All right. So. When Christ, who is our life, appears, talking about when he appears, the second coming, or, yeah, the second coming, then you also will appear with him in glory. That is so key right there, that we are going to be coming back. When he appears here on earth, when he appears, we are going to be with him. If it was a post-trib view how can we be with him? How? We can't. We can't be with him. All right, so let's go back a second page. Oh, oh, it's totally different. Hold on a second. So he who appears, then you, and Paul's, Paul's, Paul's talking to the church in Colossae, saying that you will be with him also. Uh, so in order for us to come back with him, We'd have to be with him first. Yeah, kind of like in that First uh, Thessalonians, that we're with him. Makes sense. I don't know what's so hard to. Sometimes it's if you have a mindset, if you if you're totally set, and I am. I I'll be honest. I am totally set on the uh, uh, the pre-trib viewpoint. I, I'm totally set on it because I think the scripture definitely teaches it. And I see too many comparisons with 
the Jewish wedding feasts and the the festivals. So I am pretty, I don't want to say dogmatic, but I'm I'm sold on this. So I can see how some people, well, it doesn't fit in with my my theology. Well, I'm sorry. Uh, the answer is it's us. I mean, we, we have to look at scripture. We're the ones that are in the way of understanding this. So anyways, uh, the analogy between the Jewish wedding, marriage customs and Christ's relationship to the church is very, it's just absolutely cool. Just looking at the comparisons, but what practical significance does it have for us today? Okay. The answer is twofold. First, if you have never taken Jesus Christ personally to be your savior for, for our sins, it has a great significance for us. So uh, I think we're going to end that right there. So I've got some more uh, where we're, we're looking at uh, some of the comparisons on it. We'll, we'll just kind of end it right there. Uh, next time, we're going to look at uh, pre-trib versus post-trib and look at the the direct, like certain events that correspond uh, with each other. And once we do that, it is mind-blowing once you see it. Uh, so with that, uh, anyways, yeah, pay attention and look for yourself. Don't trust me. Look, go back, look at the verses that I've talked about and uh, you be the judge, okay? Don't take my word for it. Look at his word and then study his word and understand. God wants us to understand that. He doesn't want, he wants clarity. He wants, he, he's not a God of confusion. So he's not going to confuse us. Oh, he's saying this. No, he's saying this. I don't really understand this. But he's going to absolutely, uh, show us and we need to keep our eyes open for the truth and understand what's going on uh so with that uh i love you guys thank you for listening and again I, i'm not the type of person that goes for like a million hits on a view or on a, on a video if if one person can listen to this and uh change their ideas and and, and look at it and say wow and become a believer in Christ, become a follower in Christ, it is absolutely, totally worth it. Absolutely, 100%, totally worth it. Uh, with that, uh, I love you guys. And uh, when you experience, pray that, that someone will come into your life. And someone you don't know, you'll cross paths, and you'll be able to share and, and be a witness to someone. I pray this uh, in Jesus' name. Amen.